Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. Good morning. Thanks for being here today. Thank you to those of you who are online for checking us out once again. Uh, Today we are finishing with John chapter 1. We're three weeks into this and we're going to go through the last uh, passage, 17 verses I believe, 35 through 51. As I mentioned these past few weeks, we do have a different uh, church family member reading these scriptures for us so we could see the totality of what we're preaching on and then whoever's sharing the message will preach on a specific uh, portion of that or a few verses throughout all of that. Our desire is, is that you are, if you, if you call Central your home, that you are regularly reading these passages. We text them out every Monday afternoon. They're also emailed to you as well, where you can uh, read through these several times. Let the Holy Spirit teach you already what he wants to show you before you come in on Sunday morning. There's a prayer focus as well that you could uh, focus your time with the Lord in, and you can come filled up and ready to go, and this can just be the icing on top. Amen? So let's listen and watch this week's uh, verses. Brock and I'll be reading John chapter 1 verses 35 through 51. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by he said, look the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this they followed Jesus. Turning around Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How how do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Whitney was with us first service, but she did a great job, didn't she? It's a lot of scripture to read. So So the title of my message today that I want to share with you is Come and See. When we come to Jesus, we're not following a bunch of rules and regulations. We're following a person. We're following God's uh, son. We're following Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, the lamb of God. And that requires a personal relationship uh, with him. So he doesn't just tell us, hey, come and you can follow the 10 commandments and have a great day. But we get to come and actually experience who Jesus is as a person. You know, the bottom line of what I would love for you to take away uh, is, is really what you'll see on the slide. 
slide next here. It's this. It's following Jesus requires our full surrender. And when we do, we experience more than we could ever imagine. You know, there is something on our part of surrendering something to him when we come to see him, to experience who he is. And we have to surrender those things before we can receive from Jesus. Like he wants to give us his heart. He wants us to experience the fullness and the glory, even as earlier in chapter one said, the glory of God himself as displayed through Jesus Christ. But it does involve us giving things up. And oftentimes that word surrender is like painful. It's a sign of weakness. It doesn't sound fun to do. Even when we know, you know, as kids growing up, when you surrender, you put the white flag down. You say, I give up. Now in the world, that means we lose, right? We admit you're stronger than me. I can't win. But in the kingdom, we win. When we surrender, we actually win because we put the white flag up and we say, I give up, I can't do this, I'm weak, I can't figure this out. And God says, finally, you have figured it out. And he gets to come and embrace us, share with us his love and his heart, and that all comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we're going to look at four different instances in these 17 verses where the phrase come and see is either said or it is displayed by individuals' actions. The first one shows up in verse 39 where Jesus is talking to John's two disciples where he literally says, come and you will see. The second one is in verse 42 where Andrew, who was one of John's disciples, goes to his brother Simon Peter and he brought him to Jesus. Do you know what he's saying? Come and see who I have found. Jesus says to Philip, or Jesus sees Philip in, uh, in verse 43, and finding Philip, Jesus said to him, follow me. What's that mean? Come and see what I am all about. And then the fourth one is in verse 46, where Philip says to his friend Nathaniel, come and see. Hopefully, if you've been reading these verses leading up and contemplating on that and asking the Lord to actually teach you through uh, his Holy Spirit, you're seeing this pattern of Jesus inviting people to follow him, but not again, not just for roles, not just for religious duty, but to actually be in relationship with him. And you'll also see other people inviting their relatives and their friends to come and see and experience what they did personally. So these are two questions that I have for you today. The first one, am I responding to Jesus's daily invitation to come and see? This is what you do privately with him in your time of prayer, in your time in the word, in your time worshiping him. It might be driving to and from work. It might be before you leave from work. It might be right before you go to bed. The question is, is are you actually responding to his daily invitation to come and see. The second question is, is this, are you inviting others to come and see Jesus with you? That might not be privately. That might be weird for you to say, hey, why don't you come into my bedroom at six o'clock in the morning when I spend time with Jesus? That would be awkward. But you can invite them to come and see Jesus in your group, in a church setting, in a service, or even just by sharing what the Lord is doing in your life. I think these are two important questions to ask ourselves regularly because the Lord is inviting us regularly into his presence. Amen? So all the way back in verse 35, we're, uh, John, and we're talking about John the Baptist. Now, the apostle John's writing, but he's talking about John the Baptist 
the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, they're all getting on him about why he's baptizing the way he is and why he's preaching the way he is. And the very next day, it says John was there again with two of his disciples. So the disciple means a follower. So these two individuals are following John's ministry. When they saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, if we remember from last week, that phrase, the Lamb of God, isn't not, wasn't not necessarily understood in the way that we look backwards at the Lamb of God, knowing he was the perfect sacrifice, he was the sacrificial lamb, he was what needed to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We now know over those 400 years when God wasn't speaking, we know we've heard of these things called the Maccabees, right? Judas Maccabeus, who took down uh, the enemy at that time. And during that season, the lamb was actually looked at as a conquering animal. So when he says he's the lamb of God, he's actually speaking of Jesus as the conquering champion of God. He's making a profound statement about who he believed Jesus to be. And what happens here is he's walking, he points to Jesus, and his two disciples actually follow Jesus. Now, I believe these few verses will check the motive of a Christian at any time. And this is this, is what is our ministry, our success, our social media, our quotes, our lives, what are all of those things pointing to? Are they pointing to ourself so we gain a following, so we gain fame, so we gain money, so we gain our own platform? Are they all pointing to the Lamb of God? See, it's interesting because John the Baptist had no problem gathering a crowd. Like he didn't think that that was an issue. In fact, the more people who would come to his ministry out in the wilderness or in the desert, wherever he was preaching, the better. He could preach the message of repentance, turn away from sin, and look to God for forgiveness. The more people he could baptize, the better. So he wasn't against having a following The issue was is this, when they came to follow him, he had no problem pointing them to Jesus. I mean, think about this. That very day in verse 37, when the two disciples heard John say, look, that's the one, they actually leave John and they begin to follow Jesus. Like that would hurt a lot of our feelings, right? That's like you've been following me and spending time and hours and teaching and days and maybe they were the ones that helped give the guys towels when they got out of the river from being baptized. I don't think that happened, but I mean, these guys were close to John. They're following John and yet in an instant they leave to go with Jesus. And you know what? John had no problem with it at all. John's entire ministry was inviting people to come to him so they could leave him to follow Jesus. And that's what we want our lives to be, right? Get close enough to me so you can learn about Jesus and then go and follow Jesus. He was inviting his disciples to follow Jesus. So what happens? Verse 38, turning around, Jesus, he sees them and he says, what do you want? Well, they said, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So Jesus says, come and you We'll see. Now this sentence, what do you want? In the original language, it's really getting to the heart of the matter. It's Jesus is asking them, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? He's asking for their motive. 
He's saying, okay, are you looking for truth? Are you looking for wisdom? Are you looking to gain an edge in your career? Like what are you honestly seeking? And we have to ask ourselves that too. Like, are we trying to get something out of following Jesus? Or are we truly coming to him with a life of surrender saying, take all my junk, take, take all my sins, take all my failures. And you know what? Take all of my successes, take all of the affirmation that, that I've been given, take all of my awards and just come. Just come closer to me. Reveal more of your heart to me so we can understand who this Savior is. The, the, the goal is to become more like Jesus. Amen? So that's what we want to do. We want to come and see. So if you notice, these guys who are following John call Jesus rabbi. That word rabbi literally means my great one. Or in Greek it means teacher or expert teacher. If you remember, John, the apostle, is writing to both Jews and Greeks. So he's actually explaining it as he's writing. They wouldn't have had parentheses like we put them in, but he's literally explaining this one that, that, that the Jewish people knew as my great one means teacher. So they're acknowledging Jesus. They don't even know him yet, but because John said he's the lamb of God, they are acknowledging Jesus as an expert teacher and they are willing to go and follow him. So what does Jesus say? He says, come and see, come and you will see. Cause they're like, where are you staying? He's like, what are you seeking? What are you really after? We want to know where you're staying. So they're not saying like, Hey, are you staying at the Hilton or are you staying at the Marriott? Like we want to know, does it have an indoor pool, outdoor pool? No, they're saying, where are you staying? Where are you setting up camp? We don't want to just give you a high five as you walk past. We want to spend time with you. See in the biblical days, Disciples had to seek out rabbis to follow. They weren't chosen like Jesus operated. They had to seek the rabbis out and they had to follow them. And eventually they would ask, can I become one of your disciples? And if that rabbi thought that they were good enough product and good enough quality to follow, they would actually permit them. Now, once they were following the rabbis, the rabbis would actually use this phrase, come and see. They were already in relationship and they were already in this mentor, teacher, student uh, following. And now a problem came about. They were trying to seek out uh, the will of the Lord or one of the laws of God. And what they would do when there was an issue, they would say, come and see. And what it was, it was a beckoning, an invitation to get closer to the rabbi, to learn about the problem, to discuss the problem until a solution was found. And you know what? These disciples of John would have understood that. They would have known how this relationship works. And Jesus is actually inviting them not into what hotel he was staying at. He, in an instant, is inviting them into a rabbi-disciple relationship. Now, for many years, I didn't understand what a true biblical disciple meant, what a rabbi-to-a-disciple relationship meant. But as we learn what it looked like back then. And then Jesus was actually inviting people into this same relationship back then. And he's inviting you and I into this relationship now. I think it has greater meaning so we can put a greater emphasis on what it means to truly follow Jesus as a disciple. 
You know, part of our 2027 vision is multiplying disciples. It's what Jesus called us to do. So we take 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul's telling Timothy to take what Paul has taught him, teach it to reliable people who can teach it to others. So now we have Paul, a spiritual great-grandfather. We have Timothy, his son, who will teach other spiritual sons, who will teach other spiritual sons. That's four generations of multiplication. In our part of our 2027 vision, we see fourth generation discipleship as the standard in the Bible. Within these next five years, we want to see three generations of discipleship multiply within what we call central communities, which is a mid-sized gathering that we want to plant churches and multi-sites and start new central assembly of gods in different areas of this region. Why? So we can have a name? So we can get a badge? Absolutely not. We want to operate like John the Baptist. Look, look, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what discipleship is. We're not making disciples of ourselves. We're making disciples of Jesus. And it's important to understand what a biblical disciple is. So I want to take just these few verses where Jesus says, come and see. And I want to teach you a little bit about what it meant to be discipled in the Bible. That word disciple in this most simple form means a follower or a learner. It was really a student who adhered to and then traveled with an expert teacher who they called rabbi. I want to give you an overview from at a very young age and how somebody actually became a rabbi. So Jewish children, both boys and girls, would begin their formal study of the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, at the age of five. So these boys and girls, in partnership with the local synagogue, would be taught how to write it, how to memorize it, how to read it, and all their focus was on the Torah. In fact, many children this age from five all the way up to age 12 would do what Josh just did. They would memorize literally the entire Torah, the entire first five books of the Bible. Now, when they reached their conclusion of this initial time of education at the age of 12, the boys were able to actually go into the temple for the family Passover sacrifice. So he was able to go in with his dad and uncles and so on. They were allowed to go into the temple. Now, at the age of 13, the boys were expected to pick up their family trade. So if you were a carpenter, now you were a carpenter. If you were a fisherman, that's what you did. Now, if you were one of the smarter individuals and you had good memorization skills, at that age of 13, the boys were allowed to continue in education in the Torah. So it'd be more memorization, more expert advice on the laws, how to follow the laws, and so on. Now, this went on from 13 to about age 18. Okay, you guys follow me? This is good to understand because this was the life of a Jewish child. Now, at the age of 18, your formal education was like done. It's over. We're good. The expectation at the age of 18 was to then create a family, get married, begin having children. You've already learned the trade from age of 13. You've learned that trade. Now it's time to leave your family's house. However... The smartest of the smart, I call it the gifted class of the Jewish boys, were able to begin following a rabbi at the age of 18. That means the parents would say, you don't need to do the family trade. You don't need to have a family right now. So from the age of 18 
all the way to the age of 30, we're talking 12 years, these individuals would follow the rabbi. The goal was this, to become as the rabbi is. The goal of the rabbi was to reproduce themselves in these young men, all the way to the age of 30. Now, if you know enough about history, how old was Jesus when he started his ministry? He was 30 years old. So he wasn't like making his own rules up as he was going. These men, these followers of John, would have recognized Jesus is of the age to be a true expert teacher, a true rabbi, and to be followed. But these guys knew what it would take to become a disciple. And I want to read a little bit uh, from individuals from a Jewish history of what this meant. Being a disciple meant that you stood in awe of the rabbi, that you were totally committed to him, and most importantly, you were totally committed to becoming just like him. Now follow this. This was in place hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, before Jesus comes. Are you with me? This is what earthly boys, uh, boys did from 18 to 30 to a human rabbi. And on the other side, Jesus is inviting these young men into the same relationship from a divine perspective. You were totally committed to becoming just like them. When he taught, you would contemplate his every word. You would study his facial expressions. You would mimic his hand gestures. When he ate, you would note whether he ate the soup first or the bread. And you would do the same. You learned to pray like he prayed, dance like he danced, and sing like he sang. You would travel with him, oftentimes in the company of other disciples. You slept where he slept, and you ate what he ate. If it was his practice to walk fast, guess what you did? Y'all listening or what? If, you, if, he walked, if your rabbi walked fast, what would you do? If he walked with a little bit of a skip, what would you do? You would walk with a little bit of a skip. You would do the same. It is said that the disciples stuck so close to their rabbi that they became covered with dust, kicked up by his sandals. This led to a saying that maybe some of you have heard, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, when you consider that the purpose of having a disciple is to make that disciple in the image of yourself, then choosing a person to be a disciple implies that you, as the rabbi, are confident that the disciple has a high likelihood of succeeding. So follow this out. These rabbis wanted from Moses to Joshua all the way down to them. They wanted a successful chain of training and discipleship. So that person stayed so close to the rabbi that as the rabbi walked, they would be covered in their own dust, doing exactly as the rabbi would, so as to re reproduce or replicate who they are. This is what the young men of that region understood about following a rabbi. So when Jesus comes along on the scene and says, come and see, follow me, you, I'll make you disciples or fishers of men, they understood Jesus is inviting me into a life-changing process that they thought was going to last 12 years, but only lasted about three and a half. But he was inviting them into this process of being close with Jesus and becoming as Jesus is. 
Not the divine part, but the way he acted, the way he interacted, the way he connected with the Father. This discipleship process is to become like Jesus. There was a process or a pattern that they followed, and it was like this. You would be with him. The disciple would be with the rabbi. They would learn from the rabbi. They would follow his ways or obey him. They would become like him. And the result is that they would reproduce this in others. If they got to the year of 30 years old and they successfully did this, they became a rabbi that people then followed. This is the part of discipleship that is missing in the American church. As we try to obey some of the things of Jesus, but don't behold him long enough and abide with him long enough to actually become him, become like him, I should say, enough then to want to reproduce him and other people. There's not that reproduction, that multiplication doesn't happen. Right? So we sign up for a group and we're learning some things and some principles. These, this is full of great principles, great commands, great truth. But the goal is to take these things to then get the heart of Jesus in our heart. He's our rabbi. We are his disciples. So we can ask ourselves, are we spending time with him to learn from him? to obey him so we become like him and reproduce ourselves or reproduce him in others. Now the very cool thing about all this in scripture, these 18 year old boys that their moms and dads says, okay, you're, you're the smartest of the smart. You do not need to do the trade. You don't need a family right now. You go and you find a rabbi. What they would do is they would seek and search for a rabbi to follow. And the student, the 18-year-old, would have to find the best of the best, the one with the best reputation. And they would go to them and ask if they can become their disciple. Now, that disciple, after enough interaction, would either decide to accept them, if they were the, the brightest of students who said, you know what, I can reproduce myself in them. Or they would reject them. Did Jesus do this? Not at all. Not at all. Jesus did not wait for people to come to him. Jesus reversed this. His kingdom is so awesome. So what he does is he finds people that are already in their trade. What does that mean if they're already fishermen, if they're already a tax collector, if they're already known as a zealot? It means they're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. They're already out of learning from the Torah, which means they weren't the smartest of the smart. They weren't in the gifted class. And he went to them and he said, you, I want you and I want you. Come and see, follow me. This is amazing. It would have been insulting for the other rabbis to see this happening. What the, who is this guy? He's not even waiting for them to follow him. And he's picking fishermen? A tax collector? Are you serious? That's not the way this worked, folks. But Jesus saw something in them. Jesus sees something in you, right? Proverbially speaking, you could say, I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a tax collector. I'm hated by everyone. I wasn't smart enough to go into rabbinical school. And he's saying, tough. I'm inviting you to come and see, to follow me, to be a true disciple, to become like Christ outside of the divine part. And now to make disciples of Jesus with him. Amen? So my question is this. 
I'm asking myself, you can ask yourself, is am I following Jesus close enough to be covered by his dust? As he makes a right-hand turn in your life, are you right there? So he kicks up a little bit of dust and it gets on your ankles. When he sits down, are you sitting down right with him? So when he stands up, a little bit of dust gets on your right arm. Are you close enough with him that you are being covered with the dust of your rabbi? So Andrew wants this thing. Jesus, or he's, uh, Andrew's following John. Jesus gets pointed at. Andrew starts following Jesus. He spends the afternoon with them. And in verse 41, it says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And then John explains, that means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter, which really means rock. What did Andrew do? Andrew was so impressed with what he saw after one afternoon of spending with Jesus that the first thing he did the next day is he went and he got his brother. And what did he do? He's saying, come and see. Like grab Simon Peter up by his collar and said, you are coming to meet the one who we now know is the Messiah. So listen, I want that urgency in my life. I know I could afford to have much more of it. And my, uh, my heart would be is that we all have that urgency, that compelling to grab people by their collars if necessary to say, come and see the Messiah that we found. I started thinking about this uh, the other day. So we have four teenagers at home. They have phones and you know, they, they'll find funny memes and pictures and I'll find funny memes and pictures too. And laugh a lot with my kids. Anyway, but when you see something that is funny on your phone, or maybe you see like a a wonderful quote from a message, or maybe you see a profound teaching or something, what's the first thing that you do? If you're, if you were all like in the, in the living room together, you'd say, Hey, 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 come and see this. Come and see this. Right. We're talking like something silly, like something completely silly with, with like total nonsense, but you really want somebody to come and see so I've been asking the Lord, like, what is it that compels people to want somebody else to see what they have on their three little inches, their three square inch? And why are we not that compelled to bring people to Jesus? Like we get excited to show somebody what's on our phone. But we're not compelled enough to somehow say, will you please just follow me as I follow Jesus? Let me introduce you to the Savior of the world. I'm not saying that to cause guilt or anything. Like I'm asking the Lord, whatever compels me to want to show other people things that I like, would you give me that same compelling uh, confidence to bring other people to Jesus? So Andrew does this with Simon. Simon comes. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. What's that mean? Come and see. Listen, Jesus was not qualifying Philip as an expert student. He didn't say, what grades did you get in, in, rabbin- or, or in little school? What, what, how much of the Torah did you actually memorize? Not at all. He's like, all right, Holy Spirit pointed you out to me. Come on, let's go. Follow me. And this is awesome. We in America disqualify ourselves. We argue with God. We tell Jesus all the bad things we've done, why we can't follow him, why he can't bless us, why he can't move us along, why we can't experience our breakthrough. Philip doesn't do this at all. You know what he does? He gets to step in. 
he realizes this is a rabbi and I'm being called to surrender and follow. Now we think it's like, oh yeah, this was easy for them. No, 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 no. Listen, if they were already fishermen two, three years and their, parent, their dad was training them or a carpenter and they're being trained in their skill, this is the future of their career that they are stepping away from. Some of them getting close to having a family, stepping away from them. There was surrender to follow Jesus. But you know what? He offered them so much more than they could ever imagine. Amen? I heard this quote one time. They said, the grace of God is free. The kingdom of God will cost you everything. And I I I love that. The grace of God is free. He's here and willing to forgive your sins, to bring you into his kingdom, but to walk in his kingdom, to be his disciple, we must surrender our junk. So Philip, what does he do? He starts to follow Jesus, and what does Philip do? Philip goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel, verse 45, and he said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. How many Jewish children, how many Jewish rabbis, Jewish leaders of that day did not see it? And yet Philip sees it, he understands, this is the guy that Moses was writing about. He said, and this is the guy the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Now watch what what Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And Philip responds, come and see. I wanted to understand a little bit more about Nazareth and why. Like, was, was Nathaniel just like a jerk? You know, was he cranky? Didn't he eat breakfast that day yet? Like, what was going on? What I learned is this, is Nazareth is just a small town. We, we would have known that from our Christmas stories and so on. But Nazareth was a small town. There wasn't really anything notable that did come out of it. And it wasn't mentioned a lot by the prophets or anything. So it wasn't anything that the Jewish, uh, a young Jewish boy would see as being popular. What I also learned was that the Roman soldiers actually put up barracks there. So they had like a, Ro- a soldier outpost in that Uh, in that town. So they would have brought their false gods with them. They would have brought their mistreatment of Jews to them. So Nathaniel either knew nothing about Nazareth and was like, what good's going to come out of there? I don't even know that place. Or he would have known it as a place where there are Roman soldiers potentially worshiping their false gods. In any case, this is what happened. Nathaniel put God in a box. Nathaniel was saying to Philip, I know how Jesus is going to show up. And he's not going to show up through Nazareth. And I believe too many times than not, Christians, we do this. We put God in a box. We think we know how he's going to show up. We think we know what the precursors are going to be. And then we start to put labels on where Jesus is going to move. Many of you may have heard, if you have social media, I don't know how you could not have heard, but a week and a half ago, February 8th, I believe it was, on a Wednesday morning uh, at, I just slipped my brain, Asbury University. I have like four universities in my head right now. Uh, Asbury University, they had a normal chapel service, 10 a.m. Guy preached a pretty average message, if I could be a critique in that. He just said, just a plain average message on the love of God. And his, his, his plea to the students that were there, would you just encounter the love of God in a fresh way? Just come to the love of God, experience the love of God. So there were a group of students who stayed after that chapel service to continue to pray and worship and it did not stop. 
So we're talking day after day after day. Now it's 11.54. It's still happening. 24 hours a day, these last 10 days, a true, authentic outpouring of the Holy Spirit is occurring. It is a revival of the saints. Now I have seen some amazing posts and great uh, godly articulation of what people are experiencing and what they're observing there and so on. And as all, I've also seen some comments uh, that, that are starting now to put God in a box in how he showed up at Asbury. For instance, there's this one post, and I'm not casting judgment on it, it's just, I want us to keep, I want us to, to take the box off of God. Is this one said, well, I've learned this one thing about uh, why this is true revival. This is revival because no guest evangelist was there. No worship team, was, no one worship team was leading. No lights were on, no screen with words. The chairs are uncomfortable. It's just a raw move, so it's real. Now, I love that there wasn't a guest speaker, that there wasn't a worship team, that it was pretty much student-led and God showed up. But that isn't what makes it revival. So what we're doing is we're taking one instance and then we can look back at the Toronto revival, the Brownsville revival, Azusa revival, where there was an evangelist. There were very gifted worship leaders. And some of those, the lights were on, the words were on the screen. Does that mean God doesn't wanna show up? And what we're doing is we're saying, oh, God, God shows up at Asbury, but Houston, what good comes from Houston, Pennsylvania, right? And we start putting God in a box, no. God did not show up because the evangelist didn't show up. God didn't show up because there wasn't a guest speaker and no spotlights. God showed up because there was a group of people hungry for God, prayed for him to come, and he answered their prayer. So there's an evangelist, there's a band, there's lights and words. He'll still show up. What he's looking for is people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and holiness because of surrender, confession of sin, reconciliation, travailing before the Lord. And he shows up in power and people are being healed. This one prophetic voice came not to be a speaker and said right next to him, a girl just started manifesting, set free from demons right next to her. Nobody praying for her just completely set free. But the Lord is moving in power. So it goes to Lee University, Cedarville University, uh, Samford University. There's at least three or four other universities where this thing has spread. So you have people believe it's a move of God and then you have critics. And watch what happens yesterday. Asbury announces that tonight is the last public service. During the day, there'll be public services the rest of the week. The evening services are for students, uh, high school students and college students only. And then after this Friday, they're, they're gonna close off all services. They're going back to their chapel service and they're going back to what they feel like their mission is, is to equip and send out uh, Christians across this nation. And I love, listen, you already see it on social media. They're shutting down the revival. And I love one of the response. In the upper room, when the Holy Spirit fell for the very first time, that was not meant to be a prolonged 24 hour a day service where people just stayed in the room. They got touched by God, they were revived and they were sent out. Now there's nothing wrong if one church or one school decides to go for years every night. But what they felt called to do is steward it this way to say, you know what? 
not, we're not gonna have the services on our campus so we can function as a university, but they're going to have uh, services and worship and prayer outside, like outside of the campus in, in homes, and they believe it's gonna continue to spread. I say all this to say, let's be very careful not to be Nathaniels. Let's not put definitions on things when God's not asking us to. Let's ask the Lord to increase our hunger and our thirst for his righteousness and we will be filled. How awesome would that be if he moved in such a unique way in this church? Like we couldn't put a definition on it. Well, he moved because of this. No, he moved because of this. He moved because, no, he probably moved because we were broken. He moved because we're poor in spirit. He He moves because we're saying, I'm really sick of this junk or I'm sick of relying on my successes. I'm giving you the bad and the good. I need you desperately. That's what he wants to do. He wants to move upon people who are desperate for him. And in that full surrender, he gives us more than we could ever imagine. Amen. Why don't we stand? It's interesting when Philip hears Nathaniel say, what good comes out of Nazareth? Philip doesn't argue with him. You know that? Philip didn't put a definition on Jesus. He didn't debate him. You know what Philip said? Come and see. Come and see. You think you know where Jesus is coming from? You think you know how God moves? Just come and see. Come and see Jesus for yourself. So Nathaniel does. He comes and sees Jesus, and Jesus gives him a word of knowledge. He says, you know what? I saw you under that tree before you ever came to me. And in one, what I believe is a word of knowledge, one prophetic act, Nathaniel was like, wait a minute. You're a rabbi. You're the son of God. This is crazy. He goes from a critical pessimist to actually believing that Jesus is the son of God because of one prophetic moment. You know what I feel like happened from here to here? Is Nathaniel surrendered his need to be right. He surrendered his need to understand where Jesus comes from. He says, you know what? Just this one prophetic act, this one supernatural moment, I believe you are the son of God. And you know what Jesus promises? He goes, listen, okay, you believe me because I shared that little thing with you. However, I'm going to show you things that are so much more amazing than that. You know what Jesus is saying? Surrender your need to be right. Surrender the boxes that we put him in. Surrender the junk. Surrender the successes. And he will show us things that are much, much more amazing. Amen? We're gonna spend just a moment, just a few a few minutes just asking the Lord, what can I surrender? What should I surrender to you? But if you would just mind just closing your eyes, bow your heads, and I, I really just want you to focus on yourself and Jesus, Jesus first, and then yourself. You know, Teresa shared a word earlier that the, of the soon coming King. We have no clue what that word soon means when Jesus says it, but it could happen at any time. And it is absolutely biblical that every single knee will bow to Jesus, either by our will now or by force later when we find out, yes, he truly is the son of God, the lamb of God. So I'm just asking you, if that was you, maybe in your heart, you were saying, yeah, I definitely want to give my life to Jesus. I want to take my first steps with Jesus. I want to come and see what this Jesus is all about. I want to begin following him until the dust of his sandals gets over me. I want to learn 
what it means to be in his family. If that's you today, maybe you didn't respond whenever Teresa uh, shared that word, but you want to now. I want you to raise your hand with, with no waiting. I just want you to raise your hand. I want you to look up at me. And then we want to have a team member just minister to you after service to help you take your first steps. Is there anybody in this room today that wants to begin to follow Jesus, to come and see the goodness of God through the person of Jesus. Anyone? Yes, thank you so much. Will you see me after service? Thank you. Anyone else? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Anyone else? All right, so this is what we're going to do. You can look up at me for a moment. Uh, we're, we'll minister one-on-one with the individual that raised their hand, so we won't make everybody repeat a prayer, but I want to celebrate with this individual. It says there's a party in heaven when one person turns toward God, so I want to join in on that party. So can we thank God? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Praise be to God. We thank you, Father, for hearts that are changing. We thank you, Jesus, for your might and your power and your love. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Sharice, if you can hang out with me over here right after service. Yep, so this is what we want to do right after we just clap. See, the Holy Spirit's good like this. We can clap and cheer and smile, and he can speak to us. So Holy Spirit, in these moments, even before we leave today, would you show us in the quietness of this moment what you want us to surrender? And show us, this is not like playing release as a kid where you put the white flag up and you lose. Surrendering is a good thing in the kingdom. Surrender means you win in the kingdom. Surrender means you give up the stuff that's destroying your life and you receive what can enrich your life unto eternity. So show us in these moments, what can we surrender to you, Lord? about this is, is that the Lord will continue to speak to you outside of here. So before we leave, what I want you to do, if you are 30 years old or younger, I want you to raise your hand. It's not like the Lord doesn't want to move through anybody that's 80 years old or over. There's just grace in this country right now upon the young adults and the students seeking the Lord. So just raise your hand. If you're 30 years old or younger, or if you're over 30 and you want to count yourself as a young adult, that's fine too. If you're a young adult or younger, raise your hand. Find somebody with their hand raised. Put your hand on them. Let's pray. Come on, find somebody quickly. Move around. Come on, Jesus. Now we pray for the fire of God 
the fire of God to hit these students and these young adults like never before. A refining fire, a purifying fire, a fire that leads to holiness and righteousness without the religiosity, without the bondage, without the legalism. Father, we ask in Jesus' mighty name that this next generation would be a sign to the rest of this country of what holiness and purity and righteousness would look like. And Father, that you would honor their surrender to you. You would honor their brokenness. You would honor their humility. And that you would pour out your spirit as in the days of Pentecost, as in the days of the Azusa Street Revival and many other outpourings. Father, we're not trying to be like Asbury or do what they did. We're asking you by an act of your grace to give these young adults and these students the gift of repentance, the gift of changing the way they think so that they can grow in their hunger to see a move of God in their generation. Father, I pray that you would give them boldness and courage in their workplaces, in their college, and in their high schools and middle schools. Father, that you would rise up in them a right now word from you to say, come and see follow me as I follow Jesus. God, that you would fill the rock, that you would fill those young adult thrive groups and central communities, Lord, and that we would see an authentic outpouring of your Holy Spirit through this younger generation. We thank you that they are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. And your grace is upon this generation in this hour to bring forth a fresh move of God. So we ask that you would do it by your name, in your power, in your grace, and only by your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Hey, why don't you find the name of the person? If you if you don't know who you just laid your hand on, just get their first name and keep them in prayer. Just ask, what's your first name? Keep them in prayer. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.